Hi, I'm Dr. Jun Chen, and I'm an integrative cannabis physician. You're listening to the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Hey, everybody, this is Jason Wilson with the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. Uh, Today, I am really, really stoked to have the guest that I have on today. I have Dr. Janella Chin, someone that we just recently became friends. Um, We have a lot in common, and I'm really excited about our conversation. Thanks so much, Dr. Chin, for being willing to come on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jason. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, totally. Um, So for those that aren't already familiar with you, um, do you mind starting us off by just explaining a little bit about your background and how that led into working with cannabis in medicine? And then we'll just kind of spin off from there. All right. Well, about a thousand years ago, <laughs> right? Yeah. I feel like it's so long. Um, I was a I was a patient actually before I even became a, a physician, uh, a medical doctor. Um, I was diagnosed with ankylosing spondylitis when I was mm. a teenager, and um, it's a fancy, big, fancy name. It's also called AS for short. Mm-hmm. And basically, what it is is an autoimmune. Um, disease of the spine. Uh, it's an inflammatory disorder. There's no cure. Um, there's really, you know, no tr- no treatment that lo- that is long term. It's really just maintenance right. and palliative care. And what ends up happening is your vertebrae, so the bones in your spine, start to fuse together. Mm-hmm. They literally crazy glued together, and you lose mobility. So yeah. you might you might see people on the street where they look like they have a big rod in their back and they're sort of turning, mm-hmm. um, you know, with their whole body. They don't have much range of motion, and right. usually those are patients with AS. Um, and I went through conventional treatment as a teenager and uh, as a kid. I had a lot of pain, but I did you know normal prescription medications. I uh, went to physical therapy for many many years. Did acupuncture. Um, epidurals. I did a lot of injections and trigger point injections, but nothing gave me long lasting relief. So I wore a back brace while I was in medical school and this was in San Francisco. I went to school shortly after they legalized cannabis in San Francisco, uh, in California. Um, And Mm -hmm. I would wear this back brace all the time while I was doing rounds. Um, And one of my attendings pulled me aside and said, you know, what's going on? Why are you wearing this brace, you're having a hard time standing, you know, assisting in the OR, you know, delivering babies. I see that you're sort of standing on the side trying to sit down and you're in a lot of pain. I told them I had AS and that I was really disheartened. I was really sad because here I was training to be a doctor. You know, I had um, at my disposal, you know, hundreds of specialists. Uh, I was in this great university and no one could really offer me any relief. You know, it was sort of the same revolving door. You know, yeah, here's another yeah. prescription. Have you tried an epidural? Have you tried right. steroids? Yes, yes, yeah. you know. And there was a lot of meds that I couldn't take. You know, when you're mm-hmm. working in the hospital or you're right. studying, you can't be sedated. You can't be altered in any way. So um, surprisingly, he pulled me aside. And this was an HIV and AIDS doctor. And he handed me this bottle. Okay, and he said, you know, don't tell anyone I'm giving you this. Don't freak out. But um, this is marijuana. This is marijuana that's in a tincture bottle. And it helps my HIV and AIDS patients with pain. Um, he didn't call it CBD oil or anything fancy like that. He just said, it's marijuana, you know, steeped mm-hmm. in alcohol. Um, take it before you go to bed at night. But it really helps my HIV and AIDS patients. 
Um, and I completely freaked out. You know, I grew up in the Bronx and I grew up in a very traditional Chinese household. So there was a stigma surrounding cannabis. Um, You know, I was a pre-med. I had my eye on the prize. I didn't Mm -hmm. really experiment with cannabis a lot. But I knew, and he said it too. He said, you know, you're going to work 80 to 100 hours a week and you have a long way to go. And you really Mm -hmm. are not going to make it, you know, with just this back brace. So I sat with it on my dresser for weeks on end and I stare at it and I, I finally took it. I took it over the weekend when I wasn't on call. And to my surprise, it, it did make me feel a little funky. It, it reminded mm-hmm. me of when I first had a glass of wine. You know, mm-hmm. a little, I got a little flushed, um, but nothing crazy. But, you know, by the time the weekend was over, by Monday morning, I knew something was working because I was able to stand and do the dishes mm-hmm. without the back brace. I was able to do some, some light household chores without, you know, pain. And I went up to him that next week and I said, what is in this? <laughs> I said, right. what is this? And, and how come more patients don't know about it? And he started explaining, you know, cannabis to me and, and you know, what it is, what it isn't. Um, you know, he basically took me aside and he says, you know, there's this journal club that meets, there's other MDs. Um, you know, if you want to start learning about this plant, you know, let's, uh, by all means, let's, let's start looking at these different cases. And I made it a point for my career to learn everything I could about this plant medicine, you know, and this was, you know, in the 2000s. So, you know, a lot has changed since then. Um, but patients found me. I didn't have to advertise. I integrated into my holistic uh, family practice and word spread fast because Mm -hmm. patients could appreciate the fact that they could tell me about cannabis usage, tell me about their other medication usage without feeling like um, the doctor was going to dismiss them from their practice. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, one of the huge challenges that it seems like, you know, we've face right now with cannabis is getting people to one to get the doctors and nurses educated to know how to respond when someone comes to them saying you know i want to try cannabis or i am using it you know um but then also on the the patient side to have that um sense of safety um with with the physician to be able to just honestly share what they're experiencing what they're experimenting with and everything um because i think uh, and tell me if you agree, but there's a, a weird dynamic that's happened in our healthcare system, it seems, it, primarily based on my own experience, that um, the patient and the doctor don't always feel like they're on the journey together. Um, right. And so the patient, even though they may have you know, their primary care physician or their specialist that they see regularly, they don't always feel like, I don't know, they feel very alone in their pursuit of wellness and, and trying to, to get better. Um, and so it's almost like this... Uh, like the cannabis piece is sort of raising a, a bigger issue in healthcare broadly that stems from how stressed a lot of doctors are, how limited amount of time they have to spend with patients, um, you know, all these these other pieces as well um, that uh, I think we need to like really seriously look at if we want to improve our healthcare system and have people feel that sense of trust again with their physicians. Um and I know that I went through a very similar experience. Um, so I have like multiple spinal cord injuries. And so I've been through, I've worn the back braces. I've been on steroids, <laughs> oh you know, I've yes. you know I've been on all of these things. I totally understand. And one thing that um, before you and I had ever talked, I felt this, um, 
like connection with you because I saw on, on a, I think it was a different interview or something, you talking about your personal background. And I was like, oh my gosh, I've been through at least a piece of that. And the same way I discovered cannabis as a patient um, before I ever got involved in like uh, testing labs and research and all of that sort of stuff. And it was through a very similar sort of thing. I was like literally uh, stuck to the couch, couldn't move, had these like back spasms and extreme pain, felt like someone was like driving a knife in my spine, you know, just crazy. So I can, I can very much relate to, um, you know, at least to some extent of what you went through. Um, cause it's, it's traumatic going through that process of like, how do I find relief with a chronic condition like this, you know, um, without being just knocked out all the time. It's really hard. Uh, absolutely. And it, it, ha- it takes a huge toll on your nervous system. Yeah. Um, you know, you're, you feel like this can't be my legacy. I cannot <laughs> live like this. Yeah. Um, and, and we're young, yeah. you know, we're young and we're, you know, when you think of someone with chronic pain, you think of grandma, you know, that's right, in their eighties right. or nineties, but chronic pain, you know, hits even teenagers. I see with overuse yep. injuries through sports, um, yep. through a lot of genetic disorders as well. So you, so being a chronic pain survivor, I really know what it's like when you tell the doctor, I've tried everything and it doesn't mm-hmm. work. I mean, you, you yeah. almost don't want to go to the physician because you know yeah. the, the things that they're going to offer you. It's either right. surgery, um, prescription medications, or PT. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? Yep. And you're like, I've heard the story multiple times. Oh, you want to do another MRI? Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> What's going to change? You know, my pain is my pain. Um, but I mean, really, I think this whole medical cannabis movement is a wake up call to our healthcare system. You know, patients are turning away from mainstream medicine, you know, they're heading to forums to, to listening to podcasts like yours, um, places like, um, Wendy's shop, Artemis, Mm -hmm. um, CBD shop, because they're giving them what they need. You know, they're, you know, you, um, as an advocate, um, they're listening to these podcasts, they're connecting better and they're looking for a more natural approach to health and healing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so coming back around, so you were, you're in medical school, you discovered cannabis and were able to start to function better. Um, where did your path lead after that? Um, Kind of how did the rest of your uh, medical schooling go? And then where, where, what did you specialize in? So I specialized in integrative care. Mm-hmm. So what I knew was I, I understood that, you know, cannabis was part of a holistic movement and that it wasn't going to be the end all be all, you know, even sure. for myself. I right. knew that it, when I integrated cannabis, I, then I could get up off the couch. Then right. I, maybe I could give a breather and take my back brace off for a couple of hours. Mm-hmm. But I needed to utilize those hours and exercise, you yeah. know, do some foam roller exercises, maybe take a trip to the acupuncturist. I'm an osteopathic physician, so uh, I also use my hands to help heal patients. I do manipulation. You know, I work on the fascia and the tendons and the ligaments. Mm-hmm. So um, hands-on approach for patients. So so cannabis breaks that storm. You know, it sort of parts the clouds yeah. a little bit, and then it allows you to do other things. Um, you know, for me, you know, losing weight was a big thing. I had to lose a lot of weight. I gained a lot of weight in medical school. You know, the mm-hmm. freshman 15 became the <laughs> freshman 50. Right. <laughs> right. Um, you know, cause when you're in pain, you, you yeah, eat yeah. for comfort. Yes. Um, absolutely. and, and you know, that ice cream, that hot chocolate just feels so good. 
<laughs> right, when you're sitting on the couch. But, you know, an anti-inflammatory diet, I talk to my patients about it. Um, I have a background in nutrition, so that's a really, really big thing. So I incorporate all these different modalities with my patients, and I'm realistic. You know, it might not all happen at once, but maybe it's a start with cannabis medicine, and it's a 10-minute walk, you know, mm -hmm. getting those lymphatics moving. Or maybe it is a massage, you know, uh, something mm -hmm. like that. So I, I try to work around the patients, and that's how we created our integrative um, health centers in, in yeah. California. And can you briefly describe to anyone listening that's maybe not familiar with like osteopathic medicine versus allopathic medicine and all these sort of things, um, can you describe sort of what that means to be an osteopathic doctor, um, you know, versus other, other types of physicians, that sort of thing? Sure, sure. So there's two types of physicians in the U.S. There's MDs mm -hmm. and there's DOs. MDs right. are medical doctors. It stands for medical doctor. DO stands for doctor of osteopathy. Now, we have the exact same licensure. So mm -hmm. we work in the same hospitals, the same privileges. I can write all prescriptions, admit you to the hospital, MRIs, insurance companies cover us, et cetera, et cetera. The main difference between doctors of osteopathy is that we take an extra year, um, sometimes two years, of anatomy and physiology. So we have a, a much more um, deeper understanding of mm -hmm. musculoskeletal system and some of us, uh, very few of us, but some of us go into what's called osteopathic manipulative medicine, and that's what uh, I specialize in. And we use our hands to help heal patients. Now it's becoming much more rare and rare as pharmaceuticals became mm -hmm. the main, you know, the mainstream. Sure. Um, so most of most DOs are just like regular physicians and don't do any hands-on medicine. But there's about three percent of DOs, so there's a few of us left. Mm -hmm that uh, still still practice uh, osteopathic medicine in yeah. its tradition. Yeah. And um, what specifically kind of drew you into that route versus uh, the MD route? My pain. Yeah. My pain. Yeah. So I originally started as a physical therapy major. I knew, okay. you know, I, I, I did PT as a teenager, and I thought, okay, well, this is helpful. You know, yeah. maybe I can become a physical therapist or a chiropractor. I was very interested in anatomy and physiology. So I was a PT at Cornell, actually, and I was going to get my master's in PT um, as an, um, after I graduated as an undergrad. And I met a DO, uh, actually, while I was there, and he adjusted me. He gave me my first adjustment. Mm -hmm. You know, I was, again, in pain in college already. So I was looking for yeah. alternative yeah. Uh, relief. And I, and I said, what are, what are you doing? You're not a chiropractor. And he says, no, I'm a DO. And I said, you know, what's a DO? And he explained to me about osteopathy. And he says, you know, you, you're a physician, so you can have all the privileges as a physician, except you learn how to um, manipulate and you learn more about anatomy and physiology. So I said, sign me up. I changed my major. I became pre-med. Um, and, uh, and, and the rest is history. Wow. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. And how would you describe your experience working with a patient that was trying to work with cannabis for the first time? What was that like? So for me, it was important having my own experience um, because mm -hmm. I could relate to, to patients that were naive. You know, I was right. very, very yeah. uh, cannabis naive. I didn't know what to expect. Oh, my God. My, my mother said I would get schizophrenia if right. I tr ever yeah. tried cannabis, right? So, yeah. so I came from this really big fear factor. Um, but for me, it was 
number one was education. You know, what, what does cannabis mean? Let's break it down to plant medicine, plant sciences. Yeah. You know, what does it mean to even try alternative medicine? Um, Dr. Andrew Weil is one of my mentors. Um, oh, so cool. I really, you know, looked at, at that realm as uh, education first. Um, acupuncture is a really big part of my practice. Um, I was a researcher at Columbia University um, Women's Health Center, and we research acupuncture and uterine fibroids. So for me, when you think outside the box and you're seeing an MD, um, the biggest thing is expectations for the patient and education. Yeah. Yeah. And what were uh, people coming to you uh, to treat? What were some of the, the common things that you were seeing that people were turning to cannabis for? I imagine pain is one of them. Pain is one of them, um, but also I saw a lot of children, actually. I treated mm -hmm. mostly children in California for the first, I would say, five to seven years. Um, mm -hmm. Children, and these were, you know, these are patients that have tried everything. You know, like yeah. you and me, they've gone through the whole, you know, 10 different MDs, 10 specialists, and flew all over the country to different, you know, centers, um, you know, from Maryland to Texas to, and, and they've seen all the specialists, and I was their last hope. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, and they heard that cannabis could work. Um, and these were children with epilepsy, mm -hmm. children with cancer, mitochondrial disorders, genetic disorders. They came in wheelchairs. They were non-ambulatory, right? They weren't mm -hmm. walking. They weren't talking. Yeah. These were special needs kids. Um, and then it expanded to adults that were in chronic pain, you know, adults with MS, adults living mm -hmm. with fibromyalgia, autoimmune diseases, ALS, Parkinson's, where there really is no there really is no answer for chronic diseases, no chronic pain diseases. Yeah. And of some of the, let's focus on the children for just a second. Cause I think that's really important to talk about. Um, what, um, what were some of the successes and failures that you experienced working with kids in some of these conditions? The biggest thing with children is, and it was an important part of our practice is to make sure that there was a team approach. Mm -hmm. and still is. So I, I really want to make sure that the child's neurologist, the pediatrician, um, the psychiatrist is on board when they're working yeah. with a, a, an integrative physician such as myself. So the, having that conversation about cannabis, um, having that conversation with both parents, caregivers, guardians in the room, and the specialists so that they know that we're all a team here and we're not um, you know, trying to say, get off all your medication. You know, th th right. that's not the point when they come see someone like me. It's really an integrative. It's the best of both worlds. So that is the number one thing. And then working closely with parents, because sometimes the spouses are at odds. You know, right. mom yeah. might say, sure. I'm full on supporting CBD and, and cannabis. And dad or their partner will say, I'm against it. This is mm -hmm. not what I want for my child. So, yeah. again, communication, education. Um, you know, expectations is, is key. And when you ran into those sort of conflicts where you might have parents that disagree with one another or, or maybe even um, other physicians involved in the child's care, um, what were some of the key sort of like pieces of education that would help sort of calm those, those fears a bit? The, for my colleagues, so for other MDs, the biggest thing is sending them, you know, research articles, mm -hmm. you know, talking to them about patient cases. And sometimes um, I'll go and do grand rounds 
you know, do a mm-hmm. noon conference, a journal, a journal club, and talk to colleagues on their level. You know, what is yeah. what's happening on the receptor level, um, things like that. And and you know, sometimes they go from you know, sort of folding their arms and <laughs> and their eyebrows are just furrowed, and they're really angry to like they relax their face a little bit. Mm-hmm. So okay, this is not voodoo medicine. There's right. actually some science behind it. Um, and, and also to reassure them that I'm working with the parents. So they're not mm-hmm. off getting something off, you know, from who knows where. Right. You know, there is right. some monitoring. There's charting. So yeah. I'm charting everything and, and documenting everything. My, the parents that I work with are keeping journals. So we're no, we know how it affects IEP or how it affects... You know, what is the child's teacher saying or the speech mm-hmm. therapist or OT or PT? So we document everything and we monitor them very closely. There's a lot of follow-ups in the beginning because I want to make sure that the parents are feeling supported, that they're doing it right, you know, titration of dosing, mm-hmm. making sure there's feedback from all the ancillary health practitioners as well. Yeah. And what were the main um, modes of administration um that most of these kids would use? Were they using like um, tinctures or raw oil capsules? In the beginning, it was just tinctures. You know, the beginning, yeah. the parents were, and <laughs> just, you know, we're talking more than 10 years ago, they're making their own, right. um, they're growing their own, a few plants of their own. So in California, right, yeah, parents yeah. were allowed to, to grow their own cannabis. That was part of the medical cannabis um, legalization. And they would steep their own. Um, sometimes smoothies, uh, they make teas out mm. of it. Um, sometimes they would put it in ice cubes um, and you know, wow. and just put it in their juice, in the kids' mm-hmm. juice. So parents got creative. And parents are very resourceful. You're, you're yeah, a dad. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm a mom. So yeah. we would do anything for our children. And the, the forums and the support, the community was just astounding. Um, parents found that each other uh, and shared stories and talked about anecdotally what worked and what didn't work, um, shared, um, you know, sort of this like trusted integrative practitioner list, things like that. Um, and we all put our heads together and figured out and tried to learn from each other. Parent, you know, parents, patients teach me just as much as I teach them. Yeah. And um, going into what you just said of like trying to discover what works, what doesn't work. And obviously that's a a loaded question because it depends on the condition and the person and the dose and the, you know, all these different things. But um, what were some of those lessons that you learned working with all these patients about what typically worked better than others? uh, What forms tended to be um, better than others? You know, that sort of thing. So for the biggest thing for children, it's getting them to take it, right? The taste, you know, and and when I, when I'm treating special needs kids, they're very sensitive to taste, you know, if the, the, a lot of the, these children are on the same diet, because if, if you veer from texture or taste, they mm-hmm. just won't eat it. Yeah. So that was the biggest tricky thing. That's why moms will make, you know, the ice cubes yeah. or they juiced it or they steeped it in tea or they were, you know, really creative and, and put it in honey or something like that. Ice cream even, you know, whatever they could. Um, so ingestion, just getting them into the child was a big thing. Um, and then also timing. So some children did better taking it before school. Some mm-hmm. children did better after school, you know, before mm-hmm. therapy, 
even. So we really um, looked at timing of the medicine um, for seizure children, of course, um, rubbing it uh, sublingually, you know, in their gums mm, uh, was yeah, very yeah. helpful. Or a lot of the moms uh, made uh, uh, suppositories. Uh, and this mm -hmm. was, you know, in the yeah. very beginning, making suppositories and, and seeing if it would work. Um, and that was do well documented as well. So parents got creative because when you're when you see your child seizing and this is the only mm -hmm. thing that works and they've yeah. tried the conventional anti-epileptic medicines, um, they they tell 10 more families and then 10 yeah. more families come in. Right. Yeah. And um, the cannabis that they were using were these THC varieties, CBD varieties, uh, mixture, you know, along the spectrum. You know, what were they working with? There, there were mixtures. There were mixtures yeah. along the spectrum. Um, you know, the very beginning, we weren't calling it CBD or THC. Mm -hmm. There's just so many different chemical variants. Um, you know, I helped connect them with different growers, different cultivators. And we knew, you know, this cultivator was able to grow something that didn't make the kid very sleepy. Right. Mm, so obviously yeah, it was yeah. lower in THC. But that's how we documented in the beginning. And as technology changed, as, you know, more and more things, uh, information was made widely available. I mean, I use both CBD and THC for children. It really mm -hmm. just depends on what the goals are, what the disease, what the symptomatology is, um, and also um, working with how functional the child is as well. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you mentioned titration. Um, I think that's something when I was when I was talking with Wendy, that was something we got into because. From her experience running a store, she noticed that a lot of people are not exposed to uh, that process of trying to find kind of the minimum effective dose and to know, you know, what you're working with. So can you describe a little bit about, you know, for instance, right now with CBD being so popular, if people are running out trying to, um, you know, find a product and trying to find a dose, what is that titration look look like and how low do you start and kind of... Um, how much time do you wait to pass before you up the dose, that sort of thing? Uh, just describe a little bit what the, that process looks like. So very different between children and adults. Yeah. Um, actually, with the pediatric community, the parents were very familiar with titration. You know, as yeah. you know, even with your baby Tylenol, everything yeah. comes in a liquid. Yeah. And um, even with anti-seizure medications, things like that, everything comes in a liquid, and they knew how to titrate. Yeah, they knew, they know, they know how to titrate, they know how to, and as a parent, if you look at your child and they have this glaze over their eyes, you already know they're sick, right? It mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. doesn't take much. Um, yeah. they're, you know, parents are very intuitive. For adults, it's a little bit trickier. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know, I think we have higher pain tolerance. We sort of kind of just power through things. Um, so, it, it, or we want instant gratification. Um, yeah. And we want that CBD to work now, you know, yesterday. The, well, how come it's not working? Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, exactly. So it's easier to work with pediatrics, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's easy for adults, too, to like, I don't know, really confound variables and things, too, when they're they're sharing what they're what they're doing. And what were the given that children and adults are so different just in like um, surface area and metabolism and that sort of thing. I know that in the early days, you probably didn't have access to really sophisticated dosaging data because there weren't even, I mean, I'm trying to think of when testing labs really started to come along. I mean, Steep Hill was one of the early ones in California, mm -hmm. um, but that still was 
not that long ago. Um, but based on your experience now, what are some of those dosage differences between children and, and adults? So with children, um, it's, I'm just thinking of kids that are my autism patients, for mm -hmm. example, or sure. kids that are self have self injurious behaviors. Yeah. That accumulation of cannabinoids can really take a toll on them. So parents might notice that things are working really well for the first, you know, two to three weeks. There's this, what mm -hmm. I call the honeymoon stage, yeah. and the child is really, you know, you know, even keeled grounded really feels comfortable in their own skin mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden it starts to turn at the 30 day mark maybe and you they notice that the child is just more hyper you know the mm -hmm. um the motor tics sort of amp up or mm -hmm. they um they just feel like they're a little bit more more like hand biting mm -hmm. even yeah, or yeah. the repetitive um uh, echolalia, where they're saying things over and over again, mm -hmm. that might uptick as well. And I find that to be the case as the cannabinoids build up in their system. So less is more. And, um, and I actually find it a little bit harder now than it, than, I wa than it was when I was practicing in California because information is so readily available. Mm -hmm. And there's just, you know, there's 8,000 products available. So parents are trying all these different products, adding yeah. this, adding that. How come that didn't work? I read on Facebook that this brand works. So I tried this brand and I added, you know, 0 0.5 milliliters, another five drops, another 10 mm -hmm. drops. And yeah. so it does get muddy, but really staying the course. And, and I mean, I, sometimes I have to handhold a lot of, a lot of these parents and just say, no, you want to stay with. 0.2 milliliters of this brand for a 30 days, you know, just hang in there. I know, I know you're not getting the results that you're getting, but we're doing it slowly, you know, mm -hmm. then talk about sleep hygiene, you know, talking to the physical therapist or the speech therapist, you know, sort of tweaking things that way. Um, with adults, it's the same thing, you know, being patient, knowing that to decrease inflammation in the body takes time. Yeah. And, um, and I actually really encourage the adults, let, let's say we're talking about, um, you know, chronic pain, for instance, mm -hmm. or even insomnia, um, to, to add in exercise, meditation, you know, sleep mm -hmm. hygiene, getting off the computer and electronics, you know, two to three hours before bed. Um, so it, it really takes, I would say, a lot of other approaches, not just right. the cannabis. Yeah, exactly. And when uh, patients are going through that process and trying to kind of fig find the, uh, I guess, sort of like the plateau of therapeutic response, how long do you prefer them to wait before, you know, you would make a judgment about what that uh, cannabinoid therapy is actually doing? A month. A month, yeah. Mm -hmm. I know. Everyone frowns. They don't I mean, but that's, wait a month. Yeah, I mean, but that's, you know, that's really common with, you know, uh, a lot of other drugs, you know, when you're working with a physician and trying to find, you know, dosaging, a lot of times you might only see a doctor once a month or so. And that's usually, you know, kind of how it goes. Um, so it's, it's not that surprising, but um, I could, I can understand that that's not necessarily the message a lot of people want to hear um, because they do want to see those results. And, you know, another thing you, you just touched on is sort of this, um, like biphasic response that cannabinoids have that um, at certain dosages they do one thing but then as they build or as you increase dose or whatever you all of a sudden get to this other side of this you know curve this dose response curve 
and you may be having less effect or a negative effect. Yeah. Um, and I think that's critical. I'm glad you highlighted that because that's something that I think needs to be talked about more in the context of um, using cannabis as medicine. Um, and I think that's largely a reflection of sort of this, it's not just the United States, but this kind of mentality that we have of like, you know, more is better. And, um, you know, if, if a little bit was helping, then take more and take more. And, um, you know, we have a sense of tolerance, but that biphasic response is something I think that we don't necessarily have a large appreciation for. And some people, when they might be on that other side of the curve, they might think they've just built tolerance. And so then they add more and more yes, <laughs> to yes, try to overcome exactly, that tolerance. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I mean, and we, when we look at medicine, you know, we do that at the doctor's office when you're being prescribed um, blood pressure medication or um, diabetes medication, you come back and you retest, you know, maybe your sugars aren't quite controlled. So we'll adjust it or your blood pressure, Um, even antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications, you know, doctors will tell you it takes six to eight weeks to, you know, see if there's a, there's going to be a therapeutic response um, and if it doesn't work, they're going to have to switch to another medication. Mm-hmm. So, so same thing with pharmaceutical medications. And, and I know you have, have um, Kevin Spellman on before, yeah. and yeah. I adore him. But we're looking at this plant that's affecting so many receptors that uh, that's why everyone is so different. Yep. Right? Exactly, yeah. And as much as we understand now, it's still only, you know, this fraction of a piece of a puzzle um, that we're trying to piece together, you know, the, one thing I really enjoy talking to Kevin about in that, in that interview is, you know, about the endocannabinoid system and just how complicated it is. And that, you know, we kind of have maybe some general understanding of some of the things it's doing and the other, um, receptor systems it's connected to and all this sort of thing, but we're still a long way. And this came out in my interview with Ethan Rousseau as well, that we don't have good ways of measuring the system, you know, the definition of the system is like rapidly expanding as we learn more. And so it's, um, it's really tricky. And sometimes I think there's a perception, um, especially within the cannabis industry in general, that, you know, we know so much. And so we should be able to use that information to really target treatments and, you know, make super informed decisions. And we can definitely make better informed decisions than we ever could. Um, But it's just, yeah, it's just not quite there yet. So a lot of it is still trial and error, moving slowly, um, trying to control as many variables as you can and, and proceed with caution. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I see a lot of women in my practice, um, now, and we, we have to realize, and this doesn't get discussed as often as I would like, is that estrogen makes women a lot more sensitive to cannabis, you know, and mostly THC. So our hormones interact with THC quite a quite bit and our cycle can influence Mm -hmm. how, how we feel. And this was documented through researchers at Washington state university. Um, They found that women experience most effects of THC when their estrogen is peaked, right? Right. When it peaked and beginning to fall. So this happens at like about the day or two before you ovulate. So day 12 Mm -hmm. to day 14 or so. Um, and this, this interaction makes us more sensitive to the compound in general, um, but it also um, actually gives us more pain-relieving effects compared right. to, to males. Um, but also, we actually can develop more tolerance to the THC compared to men. So for women, I actually, when they come into my office, I will look at their cycle or non-cycle, you know, so I'll look at their estrogen, progesterone levels, LSH levels, FSH levels, and I will actually create a game plan. 
and I will dose them based on their cycle. So they take a little bit more or a little less depending on where they're at. Uh, and it's important. I mean, you know, we're we're not represented in studies, uh, you know, as yep. a you know as an ethnicity, different minorities, or even as a female, uh, which is unfortunate. But I, I I do take that into account when I see female patients. That's really great to hear. That was exactly what where I was going to go next. Is um, there's this like very little discussed issue in biomedical research in general mm-hmm. that a lot of the way that we've come to think about uh, pharmacology and physiology is based on research in men and <laughs> it doesn't translate. Um, you know, I mean, some does, but you know, obviously there are, there are big differences and these hormonal differences drive all sorts of, um, nuanced differences in pharmacokinetics and things that, um, really needs to be talked about more. I mean, there's so many issues with biomedical research right now. So this is one. So the underrepresentation um, between um, ethnic groups and and sexes and that sort of thing. Um, but then also we have a reproducibility problem too. So there's a lot of biomedical research that's been done that we're having trouble reproducing. And um, it's it's a great time to have a lot of humility, I think, when it comes to to medicine. Absolutely right. A hundred percent. I'm so glad you said that. I mean, when you, when we get sick, you're going to take the same Z-pack as I am. Right. Right. Yep. Yep. <laughs> you yep. know, so why aren't we dosed differently based on our weight, our ethnicity, based on our metabolism? Right. Yeah, exactly. And, um, are there, um, I mean, you just, you just hit several of the big um, ways that cannabis can affect women differently than men, or really just depending on a person's hormonal levels, regardless of how they identify. Um, are there any other big differences that you've noticed um, in how people react to cannabis differently that you think people should be aware about? Actually, ethnicity is a big thing. Um, mm-hmm. I've noticed in my clinical data that different ethnic groups, um, you know, depending on genetic makeup, um, and where their ancestors are from will react differently to uh, cannabinoid medicine. So the Hispanic population, Asian population seem much more sensitive to cannabinoids. Um, and so, I, I mean, it's interesting because I'm, I'm looking at the data that I have mm-hmm. and I, I, I would definitely want to utilize this data and figure out, you know, where or maybe, maybe we can brainstorm offline, um, yeah. but, but really think about how this plant is working from you know, a, a demographic point of view. Yeah, I, that's something that I have, I don't know if I've heard anyone really bring much attention to that at all. Um, so that's super, super fascinating and something that, um, yeah, we really need to look at. And once again, this is one of those things where cannabis sort of leads into these discussions about medicine broadly, but, you know, this is research that needs to happen across the board, um, analyses of, you know, large data sets uh, that clinicians have and try to understand how different people are reacting to things differently and how we can drive medicine towards a much more individualized, targeted approach rather than how we've been operating since, you know, I don't know, the 50s, where we basically take um, averages of medical research and we apply therapies according to um, sort of an average sample population that doesn't even exist in the world. You know, you're always dealing with people that are bringing unique things to the to the table. Um, so that's, yeah, that's excellent to hear. Um, 
when someone comes to you and they want to engage cannabis, what are some of the things that you screen for that could be problematic, like other, like certain uh, medical condi conditions they may have that wouldn't react favorably to cannabis or other medications, you know, contraindications you're worried about, that sort of thing? Yeah, so medications is a big thing um, because most of the patients that come to me are on a lot of meds, right? Because so, you've already yeah. tried all these different things and um, all your specialists have tried to throw the kitchen sink at you, you know, so they, <laughs> they might be on antidepressants for chronic pain, you know, such as Cymbalta, for example, is something mm -hmm. I see a lot. And, um, you know, patients are trying to get off of the, a lot of these medications. So I don't recommend just going cold turkey and getting off of these medications because your, yeah. your body's biochemistry has changed. Your brain biochemistry has changed. Mm -hmm. So if you've been on benzos, antidepressants, if you've been on these pain medications, you know, for your condition for a very long time, you know, just haphazardly adding cannabinoid medicine or even other nutraceuticals, right? Yeah. Uh, other, other supplements um, yeah. can be a really dangerous thing. So I make sure that I look at the medication list, cross-reference it, and um, sometimes patients have to really wait, and mm -hmm. I start to wean patients off with their specialist. So mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't take patients off medication on my own. I make sure to sure, work with yeah. their MD as well um, and help them wean off the medication, and then we fold in the cannabis medicine or some of the other integrative therapies very, very carefully taking into account um, the withdrawals, both physical mm -hmm. and emotional yeah. withdrawal. Um, and sometimes we have to compound the medications. So for instance, um, I'm trying to think of one uh, that's actually really Ambien is one. Um, uh, let's see, we have to sometimes compound the medication so they're taking it i mean you can only break the tablet so much right right yeah before <laughs> so, it just like goes to powder exactly yeah. so sometimes we'll compound into a liquid form and help them wean off like clonopin mm. that's what i'm just thinking mm -hmm. of clonopin can take patients one to two years to get off of wow. um wow. so we'll, we'll we'll create it into a liquid formula uh with a compounding pharmacy and just drip by drip drip by drip and getting them off little by little as we fold in uh the cannabis medicine yeah and have you encountered um, any examples of um, adverse reactions between um, cannabis and someone's pharmaceuticals, uh, maybe even before they came to see you because they maybe didn't have that um, advice at the time when they started trying yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. So, so cannabinoids can work on you know your serotonin um, mm -hmm. levels, and if they're on other uh, medications that also affect that, Patients will feel much more anxious. Patients might have increased panic attacks. They mm -hmm. might feel more restless um, and just feel uneasy. Um, they always say, I feel like I'm crawling out of my skin. I did something mm -hmm. wrong. I took too much, <laughs> you know, or yeah. they're not spacing it apart with their other medications or supplements. You know, mm -hmm. sometimes patients are on four or five different supplements as well that they think, oh, it's natural. So I'll just mm -hmm. take everything at once. Um, and that's not a good idea either. So, so we really try and break it down for patients so it's much more manageable and cost-effective because yeah. that's a big thing as well. As you know, the CBD and cannabis is very expensive. Nutraceuticals yep. are expensive. Then they have their um, prescription medications on top of that. Um, and then they want to do all these other therapies as well. Yeah. So we look at everything from a practical perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And what was your, and changing gears a little bit here, but what was your experience like going from 
California's medical cannabis system to New York's medical <laughs> cannabis system when you moved? What were the difference and what was that transition like? Well, there's definitely pros and cons. In California, it was a free-for-all. Um, there <laughs> yeah, was a yeah. dispensary on every corner. Uh, you know, more dispensaries than Starbucks, uh, yeah. you know, you can imagine. So it was very difficult. I had a few of my favorite dispensaries, my preferred dispensaries, where the staff was, you know, wonderful, and they supported um, my patients throughout the process. But in the beginning, I would actually talk to these dispensaries and say, okay, my patient's going to come in, give you a heads up, you know, without disclosing. I mean, I kept full, you know, um, HIPAA, HIPAA yeah. rules, but, you know, giving them a heads up that my patient's coming and this is what we would like to try or not try. Um, and some of the really good dispensaries um, were very respectful of, of that and worked as a team. Some of them weren't and was just trying to push product and just mm. move things off the shelf. Yeah. Um, in New York, it's very different. In New York, every dispensary has a pharmacist. Oh, interesting. Every dispensary has a pharmacist and everything you pick up is logged into the prescription monitoring program. And this is the same prescription monitoring program as if you saw your family practitioner and they prescribed medication for you like Ambien or wow. um, some pain meds. They would log it in. So when you go to CVS or Walgreens to pick it up, CVS and Walgreens log in and sees that you mm -hmm. have cannabis as well, that you picked it up from the dispensary. So we're all looking at the same database. Wow. Um, so that they know that you didn't pick up too much. And the mm -hmm. pharmacists at the dispensaries here in New York will say, hey, wait a minute, you're on blood thinners, you're mm -hmm. on, you know, Oxycontin, and then you just picked up cannabis. Right. And there's some, there's some polypharmacy going on here. There might be some issues, and they'll pick up the phone and they'll call me. Mm -hmm. um, so there is some accountability and cross-reference. So it, it is a very robust medical system in that sense. Mm -hmm. But it's very cost, cost prohibitive here in New York. It's mm -hmm. about, I would say, two to three times the price as California, easily. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, and that's such a shame when you have, you know, some of these patients being um, children that are already on, you know, sometimes really expensive medications or like the elderly and the poor, you know, that um, are already struggling to pay for healthcare and then to have something like this that theoretically could be really cheap um but you know making that less accessible that's disappointing but it is exciting to hear about a medical system that where they're treating cannabis just like any other medicine or drug you know and that there's that shared um information and that you can catch things like that that there's um it's a more precautionary approach, I guess. Um, and that's, that's, um, exciting to see. I'm, I'm not familiar with New York's cannabis laws in general. So what are the conditions that New York, um, will approve somebody for, for medical cannabis? Right. So there's epilepsy, mm -hmm. uh, there's PTSD, chronic pain, which is a, you know, big umbrella term and that yeah, chronic right. pain could, you know, incorporate many different disease states. ALS, Parkinson's, uh, irritable bowel disease, you know, which is Crohn's, colitis, mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, also substance abuse, actually. They added oh, substance really? abuse. So patients that are trying to wean off opiates mm -hmm. are qualified as well. Um, there's, a, there's a good amount. Autism is not on there. Um, really? Mm -mm. Hmm. No. 
Um, but, uh, you know, patients with chronic pain, that could be migraine, that could be pelvic mm-hmm. pain, right. um, that could be, you know, arthritis. And like, for example, the cost, going back to cost, I have a patient who is seven and he has seizures. Uh, he had about 100 seizures easily a day. Um, mm-hmm. And he is controlled now with cannabis, the seizures. Maybe he has a handful a month now, mm-hmm. but they spend about three grand a month. Yeah, they spend yeah. about three grand a month on the on the cannabis. Wow. Yeah. She was. And what's your experience been regarding um, the in getting more into like the more modern work that you're doing, where you've actually got this data? But um, so there's this debate around you know isolated cannabinoids versus quote unquote broad spectrum versus full spectrum, which these terms aren't even really defined. So depending on who you talk to, they mean different things. But um, have you had any, um, have you noticed anything, any trends between different types of cannabis products and their efficacy and um, sort of the dosaging and stuff? And the reason I ask is because I've had some other clinicians tell me that from their experience, they feel that they're able to use lower dosages and get uh, fewer negative side effects with cannabis products that have a broader phytochemical diversity in them versus those that are very, you know, either isolated or um, like you have, you know, distillates and stuff that have, you know, a very narrow range of, of chemistry in them. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. So for me, um, of course, full spectrum um, seems to get a a little more mileage. Uh, I find Mm -hmm. that the efficacy of full spectrum uh, is a lot it goes a longer way for patients and they spend actually less money because they mm-hmm. need less mm-hmm. um, over time. I think with isolates, patients tend to need a little bit more. Um, and, you know, that's going back to that single molecule, right? So, right. so you're pulling, you know, you're pulling this out of the, the plant, the full plant and taking mm-hmm. it out of context. Um, right. So you may not get all the benefits, um, but I can see why isolates are used in, you know, food and beverage, um, mm-hmm. things like that for taste, or if it's harder to standardize a full spectrum right. Uh, plant, right? So, you know, the same chemovar in Florida will look different than mm-hmm. that seed in New York or California, right? You're just not going to get the same thing. So I can see why um certain industry professionals are more comfortable with isolates, mm-hmm. but I think full spectrum, um, full spectrum is better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're, uh, another one to the list. Pretty much every clinician I've talked to has, has shared the same thing. I'm, I'm yet to find anybody that, um, has had a more positive experience, um, with isolated, cannabinoids than full spectrum. Well, I think we can all agree that we just need more research, right? And and this research really needs to focus on the fundamental understanding of what's going on with the whole plant and and not just selecting out these individual molecules like CBG, CBN, you know, like like we know what we're doing because really we don't. So, and and the thing is we're still looking at this field from a disease target kill model. That's exactly. the thing, allopathic. We're still yeah. looking at this from this allopathic uh, reductive approach, uh, which is separating you know, disease into parts, 
right? We're yeah. still separating yeah. it. We feel good about separating things by element and element and component. When we see the doctor, you're going to your endocrinologist and then your nephro, you know, nephrologist and your neurologist, and all these doctors are not talking to each other because yeah. they're operating in separate silos. So it's, it's the same thing with cannabinoid medicine, um, and it's a disservice. You know, really, there's this whole universe of regenerative medicine, nutritional medicine, preventative, integrative medicine, and we're not talking about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and this um, sort of segues into a really broad topic that I kind of wanted to talk to you about. It's just you like these um, plant-based or even fungal-based medicines in general, in your mind sort of stepping back and looking at healthcare as a whole um how do you conceptualize medicinal plants and those sort of things um and maybe even um to an extent too certain like dietary supplements and stuff that are you know basically medicinal some of them medicinal plants that are just kind of ground up and capsulized but um how does that fit in your mind of the whole you know picture of healthcare broadly well, it's a, it goes back to what Kevin Spellman talked about in systems biology approach, mm-hmm. right? This is really, again, a wake-up care to our, our health system. When we look at evidence-based medicine, you know, it really overemphasizes randomized, double-blind clinical mm-hmm. control trials. It, it, it's looked as it as it's like the final arbiter of clinical decision-making. Right. But when you look at Americans, I mean, more than 40% of us belong to, again, a, a racial or ethnic minority. So what are these differences in genomes? You know, yeah. how do we take a closer look at these, these patients and how are they participating in these clinical trials? Um, there's actually something that's really interesting I want to bring up. Uh, the NIH actually has something. I'll send you the link. It's called All of Us Research Program. And it talks about precision medicine. And I think this is the future of medicine. It's looking at um, all of us to participate into this um, database, if you will. Mm-hmm. And you, it's, it's basically contributing your blood tests, your urine, saliva mm-hmm. tests, DNA tests. And they're looking at this database to start looking at how do we get more precise medicine? You know, going back to that Z-Pack analogy, mm-hmm. you know, why when you get bronchitis or you get a cold, you know, a flu, why are you going to take the same Z-Pack as I'm going to take? You know, mm-hmm. it might not work well. Um, and I think this is where plant medicine can really take hold as well um, because precision medicine can take into account plant-based medicine and holistic yeah. healing. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, something I'd like to see from, you know, sort of maybe it, that it would come from the FDA, but some sort of um, better way of um, studying in a sophisticated clinical way how medicinal plants um, can be utilized in, you know, any particular sort of like treatment modality. And, you know, in, in other countries, in some countries, um, they have, you know, a specific sort of pathway mm-hmm. that you could get um, natural products uh, approved as medicines. Um, and it's it's a lot harder in the United States. It's, I don't know that I would say it's impossible, but it is very difficult and it costs a lot of money and a lot of time. And because of that, it's not worth it for a lot of companies to try to, you know, create some basic standardized botanical extract and try to get that approved as a medicine when they could go further and get some isolated compounds, create a very unique formulation that has a much stronger patent on it, you know, that then they can kind of run with for 10 years or whatever. Um, once exactly. They get done. Exactly. There's just, there's not enough studies on, on plant pharmacogenetics, 
You know, yeah. we, we just, we need to look at, you know, really genomics more too. Uh, I mean, for one big thing that I see, you know, in my clinic is that African-Americans and um, Puerto Ricans, for example, they don't respond well to common asthma, asthma controller medications as well oh. as, as other, other um, ethnic groups. So this might, you know, this is something we might think about when we talk about plant pharmacogenetics. You know, maybe mm -hmm. there's something in the genome um, that, you know, we, we need to take into account so we don't overprescribe. Exactly, so yeah. That, that is the, that's the future of medicine. It's looking yeah. at these different, I mean, we, we don't know anything. <laughs> right. We're acting like we know. <laughs> yeah, yep, yep. Well, there's that, you know, that classic um, idea that I try to bring up time and time again. But, you know, uh, the more you learn and the more you study, <laughs> ideally what happens is you start to learn how much you don't know, right. and, you know, and, and, it, and that's, to me, that's what wisdom is, is like recognizing, you know, your own um, sort of boundaries and and recognizing that there is, you know, Kevin put it well, this dark information, dark data, oh, dark yes. pharmacology oh, yes. um, that we just don't understand. And, and looking at studies, you know, in vitro or even, you know, rodent in vivo models, they just, they don't give us the full picture. And uh, something, uh, so uh, an interview I released recently with um, Jason Miller, who's a um, traditional Chinese medicine practitioner he was talking about the difference between um efficacy and effectiveness research mm. and you know that going to something you said just a little bit ago that most research is targeted on uh disease what drug is going to influence a disease in a particular way not what um treatment modalities as a whole might lead to a better outcome for a, a person um, because yeah, you might knock out that disease, but what's going to be the consequence for that person's well-being, you know, then and you know, long into the future and everything. And that was something I really resonated with when he said that is absolutely like our just our, our focus has been we've had such an extreme tunnel vision on disease and not overall patient care and, and wellness um, in its totality. Exactly. There's no talk about prevention. You know, what about the terrain that's breeding the disease? You know, why is it that certain, you know, there's certain people that will be more prone to cancer than others? Right, right. So we, we need to look at um, medicine from this preventative perspective. And yeah. we, don't, we don't talk about that in, in healthcare because there's no time. You know, <laughs> exactly, my colleagues yeah. are seeing 30 patients a day. It's a factory. Yeah. It you know, is, maybe yeah. you have five minutes with your doctor and um, you can't get all your questions in and you're going to have to wait until the next visit, which is going to be two months from now. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. And I know just from my own experience that I'll have questions thought of that I want to ask my doctor when I go in. And then in the moment when they say, so do you have any other questions? I'm like, uh, I, I guess not. <laughs> I don't remember, you know, and then you get home and you're like, dang, I wish I would have asked this and that. And you know, that's such a common experience, I think, for so many people. And, you know, when you're in the room and, you know, maybe the physician's sharing some new information with you. And so you're processing that and trying to remember, you know, it's just it's hard when you've only, yeah, I got like 10 minutes, maybe a FaceTime. And, and then, yeah. you know, that's it. It's it's yeah, it's really, really hard. Um, Going back to um, thinking about your interactions with patients when they're coming in and kind of getting on their pers their perspective what are some of the most common questions that you receive from patients um, about cannabis and um, and this leads into another question I have about 
um, sort of common misconceptions, but we'll start just with sort of the common questions you receive about cannabis. Um, the biggest thing is most patients wanting to come in is wanting to use them, you know, throughout the day and at night as well. They mm. want to be able to use something without being impaired. Right. Um, that, I think that's the biggest thing. You know, everyone is working. Everyone's, you know, they might not have a nine to five, but they're doing stuff at home. They're, you know, they're taking care of their own parents or their children um, or friends. So it's impairment. That's mm-hmm. the thing. They come in, they say, okay, I need something for X, Y, and Z, but I don't want to be impaired. Yeah. And have you identified um, sort of some ideal CBD THC ratios that help people avoid um, feeling impaired? Most of patients that take CBD um, or a CBD dominant mm-hmm. um, formula are not impaired. Mm-hmm. But there are patients that do take CBD that feel impaired. Um, and that's usually mm-hmm. the same patients that are sensitive to, you know, Advil, for example. Um, and so th- I'll, you know, just have them switch and have them take it, you know, during the evening. But microdosing is the biggest thing. You know, if you're taking um, cannabinoid medicine, maybe the first couple of weeks you feel different. You might feel a little bit groggier, mm-hmm. but over time your body gets used to it um, and you feel less of those side effects. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so leading into the next question, what are some of the most common misconceptions that sometimes you have to confront when either either from patients that come in and sort of have a rough understanding and maybe it's not quite aligned with reality or from your colleagues potentially that have misconceptions about cannabis and its and its role in cannabis? What are some of those that you run into? A lot of, I think with all the hype, and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. this is really unprecedented. There's nothing in the world that's taken, you know, both recreationally and medicinally. Yeah. So I think a lot of patients come in thinking this is going to be it. This mm-hmm. is going to be the end-all, be-all. And they have really high expectations of it working because of everything they've read online. And, you know, my neighbor took it and she's free of cancer now. Um, or, it, right. you know, it stops the Parkinson tremors. So it must be able to stop my fibromyalgia pain, too. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it doesn't work for everything and everyone. It's not that silver bullet. Um, you really have to do other things in combination with the cannabinoid medicine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And would you say that's maybe kind of one of the big things that you wish everyone knew about cannabis before engaging it is that it's not a silver bullet? Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. And you might not find um, one product will work, you know, forever. So I usually have patients like pick, you know, two to three different favorite cannabis products that work or close to working and they switch off, you know, every quarter because our body gets sensitized to it. You know, and I always compare this to allergy medication. You might find that Zyrtec works for one season and then you got to switch over to Claritin. Um, right. And same thing with your, you know, echinacea or vitamin C or your magnesium. Yep. You need to take, you know, take a break and switch off. Um, the good thing about, um, you know, our endocannabinoid system is that we can exercise and increase mm-hmm. our anandamide levels. We can get acupuncture, massage, and our anandamide levels will increase. So there are different things that we can do with cannabinoid medicine safely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And... Um... What is something throughout your experience with patients that has surprised you, either an outcome um, 
or however you want to think about that question, but you know, you've been doing this a while now. Um, do you have any examples of some things that went differently than you expected or um, that an outcome came about that, you know, you really learned a lot from that kind of surprised you? What's, what's really surprising and um, really refreshing is that patients that might not have been into holistic or integrative medicine, mm -hmm. when they try cannabis and it works, yeah. um, it's really empowering for them you know, for the first time, they feel like I can take control of my health. Like I can have this conversation where um, it does a little bit and then I can do other things. And it really opens their mind, I think, yeah. in, in, for integrative medicine and plant medicine. And these are, you know, patients that have been on, you know, maybe 10 medications their whole life and, and yeah. keep going back to the doctor and says, okay, yes, I will take this new med. Oh, you want another medication? Yes. And they're very compliant and obedient. Mm -hmm. Um, but when they've had enough and they've tried cannabis and it works and they start to get off the other medications, they find that very empowering. They find that like, oh, my God, like I don't I don't have to rely on pharmaceuticals. You know, mm -hmm. having that conversation about nutrition and exercise exactly. is very empowering because they don't have to rely on going to the MD and yeah. writing that next script. Yeah, yeah. And. That's that's something that um, has been really exciting for me, too, on the sort of the educator side is seeing, you know, when I teach somebody about uh, the cannabis plant and the chemistry, how it affects the body, all these sort of things. And um, and then I can use that as a stepping stone to say, oh, and then there's these other plants that have these similar compounds and act similarly. And, you know, then it's like, whoa, I didn't realize, you know, that echinacea has these um, alkalamides that you know interact <laughs> yes. the endocannabinoid system and turkey tail mushrooms the you know polysaccharopeptide is interacting with, and flavonoids in general a lot of them are you know tugging on that ecs and um you know that uh, beta caryophylline which is in so many plant oils uh, you know black pepper is the most common one that gets talked about but like oh that's you know now sort of being thought of as a cannabinoid you know it just opens uh this doorway into appreciating food and medicinal plants in a totally different way that for whatever reason they just weren't able to you know there was sort of this invisible wall that they couldn't get past to kind of see how very real all of all of those you know dynamics are um and that's that's something that gives me a lot of fulfillment as an educator is like yes like you're going beyond cannabis now and that's i i've mentioned before that you know, this podcast and, and the work that I do, it's really a Trojan horse to, you know, talk about these other areas of, of health and wellness. And, and I, I also follow that up by saying, I'm not the best example of someone taking care of their health. I, I do what I can, but there's plenty I'm deficient on. So I have the educator syndrome of like, do as I say, not as I do, please. But um, it's like the cardiologist you know. smoking cigarette, right? <laughs> right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, I'll, oh I'll teach someone about medicinal plants, and it's like, all right, I'm running low on time, gotta go grab some fast food. Um, believe me, I was at Shake Shack with my kids the other day, and I saw a patient, <laughs> I was like, oh my god, I gotta hide. <laughs> exactly, I'm guilty. I know, right? We're all human, there's only so much we can do, but exactly, but it, it, you're right, you're right. And it, it is, it's exciting. It's exciting to see when uh, people can connect those dots and start to see, you know, 
coming all the way back around to like this integrative medicine approach to see their movement and their diet and supplements, you know, the tea they drink, all of these things as being part of healthcare. And um, it's something I've mentioned before in another interview, but, you know, we, at least it seems like it's changing now. And we talked about this um, earlier that a lot of times we grow up thinking that, um, you know, you eat food to stay alive, you take supplements if you have a nutritional deficiency of some sort, and you take drugs to get better from illness. And that's such a weird, broken model um, that it's going to take time culturally for us to kind of, you know, get past that. But I know as a kid, that's what I sort of absorbed, you know, mm -hmm. from what I was taught and exposed to. Yeah. Um, and then I got older and I was like, dang, okay, well, this is all totally wrong. <laughs> right. Well, what, the great thing is that you have platforms like this to, to educate and to reach um, so, so many, so many people. And there's wonderful practitioners, ancillary practitioners. I mean, you have Jana Champagne, epigenetics, yeah. um, you know, nurse practitioners, nurses, health coaches, chiropractors, naturopaths, Ayurvedic yeah. medicine, um, you know, plant you know, plant uh, specialist, you know, look at Kelvin. Oh my gosh. Yeah. He knows a lot more so, than your normal MD. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't always <laughs> have to go to your MD all the time. I mean, there's all these great resources that are at your fingertips. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I guess, um, so to get into another question I wanted to ask you is on those, that topic of resources, um, what are some of your preferred learning resources regarding cannabis? Oh my goodness. <laughs> well, I have I have this resource. Oh my gosh. <laughs> You're making me blush. <laughs> um, there's there's some really great resources out there. Um, it's the, the the also the thing is there's also misinformation, right? So a yeah, lot of yeah. uh, a lot of cut and paste. Um, you know, yes, we're sort of yeah. echoing the same thing. Um, but there's there's some really great resources. Um, I I'll, I'll send you a link and maybe you can put it in your show notes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, that's something I always try to tease out of my guests to try to understand what mm -hmm. you found most valuable and try to connect people to that. That'd be great. Um, and now taking a step back. Um, and looking at sort of cannabis science and cannabis research as a whole, um, what sort of interests you the most and what do you hope to see from the future of cannabis research? Oh my goodness, a lot. Big question. That <laughs> yeah. is a huge question. I mean, for, I mean, the, the thing about, uh, the thing about research, especially for plant medicine is that it, not everything is going to fit into a box. And I just had this conversation um, with Kevin a couple of weeks ago. And we're trying, I mean, the thing about, <laughs> I mean, that's the thing about research is that research has to be double blind, right? Research has to be random controlled. And then what are you going to make of a plant that has different compounds that you mm -hmm. can't standardize? So it's almost like Mother Nature's laughing at us. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, I, I and then you look at the different receptors. There's I, I, there's a really great receptor map that I use in my presentations of the ECS and how uh, different different phytocannabinoids affect. Mm -hmm. And there's just it's just scattered everywhere. I mean, you can't even it's, it's like we're we're a blip. Mm -hmm. There's, yes. there's no way to wrap your head around it. And that goes back to dark pharmacology. I mean, look, mm -hmm. think about plant medicine. There's, there's no way to wrap your head around this research. And that's why I, I, I um, 
talked about that NIH um, platform because we, if we can contribute the different information, uh, the genomics, mm -hmm. um, you know, our blood, our urine, our DNA, we can really look at precision medicine, individualized medicine, and that's not what we have right now. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it makes me wonder, you know, if we're in this situation where we're sort of like a bacteria trying to understand a human, you know, like there's this um, barrier to understanding that you can just like really never get across. And it makes me wonder if, and I mean, I know to an extent this is true that, you know, the role of AI and machine learning is going to become really invaluable to help us um, try to extend that sort of boundary that we have to work with. Because you're right, like, there's so much data, so much information, there's no one human brain that's going to be able to synthesize all of that and digest it and and then work with it. Um, it's I think it's going to take some help um, from something beyond what, what we're capable of. And maybe that's a, a good role for AI and healthcare is like this NIH, you know, data gathering um, initiative to get all this data together in one place where it can be, you know, manipulated and analyzed and everything. And then maybe we sick the AI bots on it and then <laughs> try to figure out what wisdom they can pull out of it and, and teach us. Um, cause otherwise, I mean, can you imagine how much time it just time alone, not much, you know, I don't know if you're like me, like any study I read, you know, you've got to read it multiple times and try to like understand the pieces you missed and how things fit together. And, you know, um, so just the time alone is an impossible feat for, you know, anyone to overcome. Exactly. And I mean, and the important thing also to know as we scale up AI is that, you know, we can't simply base it on data either, you know, yeah, right? So yeah. there, there's mm -hmm. a, there's a sweet spot and yes. how do we use AI successfully? All right. So we're not, you know, so that we're not looking at false correlations, but we're really yes. trying to understand what's happening behind it. So I think, um, I think there's, I think that's the future. Yeah, yeah, no, I, that's a, such a good point to bring up. There are, there are things to our human experience that we're not going to be able to quantify um, that an AI is going to be able to, to pick from. So finding that blend, and maybe that's when we just upload our consciousnesses into oh, robots yeah. and <laughs> so we can make the ultimate doctors. Yeah. Um, but yeah, absolutely, there's, there's a balance there for sure, and there, there are things to our experience and um, wisdom and things uh, that you know, AI is not going to be able to overcome. So yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I don't want to keep you too much longer. You've already been very gracious with your time. We've been going for almost an hour and 15 minutes now. Um, but I wanted to ask you if there's, um, you know, in the last several minutes that we have here, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you'd like to get into? And um, if so, let's do it. And if not, then I'll just kind of hand the platform over to you to talk about anything um, regarding how people can learn more about your work and um, contact you or anything else you want to share. It's well, thank your, you so much. Now. Thank yeah. you. Uh, this has been so much fun. Yeah, I've enjoyed um, it. The like time we can, we can talk. I know. I feel like we can talk for hours. I know. Um, but we covered a lot of really great pertinent information. Um, I definitely would love to get back on maybe in a few months and see if things have changed and we can chat yeah, again. Um, but patients can find me um, at drjunchin.com, drjunchin.com. Perfect. Awesome. Well, once again, thank you so much. And yeah, I definitely would love to reconnect with you. And at some point, I'm going to make my way out to New York and then we'll have to um, get together in person. Great. And get your family over here. Yeah. Yeah. We're determined. 
it's just a matter of time. So sounds um, good. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. And uh, for those of you listening or watching, if you want to learn more about Curious About Cannabis, you can go to cacpodcast.com and you'll find um, all the episodes as well as links to like our YouTube and all of our social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And um, thanks so much for listening and tuning in. And I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye-bye. If you want to learn more about cannabis, you can check out the Curious About Cannabis book, available now on Amazon.com and other online book retailers. The Curious About Cannabis podcast is presented by Natural Learning Enterprises a science education company dedicated to the enhancement of public scientific literacy through education about the natural world. Curious About Cannabis is just one of several learning initiatives produced by Natural Learning Enterprises. To learn more, go to www.naturallearningenterprises.com or connect with NLE on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter.